Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, a senior editor, excuse me, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Guys, it's up. The merch page is up and available for your ordering pleasure at merch. M-E-R-C-H dot commentarymagazine.com. That's merch dot commentarymagazine.com. We have five initial offerings. A Crushing Morosity t-shirt, a Crushing Morosity sweatshirt, a Keep the Candle Burning t-shirt, a Commentary Logo t-shirt, and a Commentary Tote Bag. Merch dot commentarymagazine.com. Give it a give it a shot. Like I told you, they're they're not cheap, but they're good. I'm we ordered them special and we felt what they felt like and how they were and they're good so you can actually wear them not only with pride in your listenership but with pride in the quality of the clothing that you put on your back merch.commentarymagazine.com um so uh, I, I don't even know where to begin here uh, uh on the one hand i don't know why we should cry any tears over the the personnel travails at uh, Slate.com, a a website that I I feel partially responsible for the existence of because when uh, Bill Crystal and I started the Weekly Standard in 1995, Michael Kinsley, uh, in a fit of jealousy, went to Bill Gates and said, why don't you give me a, an online magazine? And Gates said, sure, okay. And they started Slate, and now it's 26 years later. And the Weekly Standard, as we know, was murdered uh, by uh, the uh, idiot mo- monster owners of the Washington Examiner while Slate uh, was bought by the Washington Post and still exists and publishes not, you know, blathering nonsense uh, day in and day out. Um, and an occasionally good thing, but mostly blathering nonsense of an increasingly woke quality. And uh, it is also a podcast network. And one of its podcast hosts, Mike Pesca, has been suspended indefinitely following a Slack channel internal conversation about the case at the New York Times where Don McNeil was, uh, you know, essentially hustled into retirement or resignation Um for uh, the accusation that he had used the N word in a in a in a session with teenagers that uh, triggered them, and Mike Pesca it turns out uh, in this slate in this conversation on Slack said there are occasions on which you have to use you know you have to you might have to use it, and then it turns out that two years ago there was a a, a podcast that they did where they. There was a story that involved the N-word, and uh, they recorded it two ways, one with the N-word and one without, decided to go with the version that did not have the N-word. But the mere fact of even having the conversation about McNeil and the fact that two years earlier Pesca had done this apparently was sufficient because of the emotions expressed on the Slack channel that day to have him ousted uh, suspended without pay and his podcast put on ice. Um, thus making this the single craziest story of the crazy stories 
so far in the world of of wokeness um maybe not the craziest but certainly in sort of mainstream journalism the craziest an event in which the decision was made not to use the n-word is the occasion for uh disciplining and trying to destroy and ruin the career of somebody who didn't use the n-word do i have this right christine am i summarizing this correctly Yes, it's it's actually it's kind of like a Mobius strip once you start trying to break down what exactly happened and why. But I think the the compelling uh, point is the same one that when we were discussing McNeil in the New York Times exists here, which is that uh, context no longer matters. There are certain things you're literally not only not allowed to say, you're not allowed to discuss the possibility of saying them. This is what Pesca's uh, suspension suggests. And one of the uh, interesting quotes from the story at The Defector, which kind of broke this news yesterday, uh, some of the quotes from um, the Slate staffers are really indicative of just how far woke culture at, at uh, elite publications has gone. One, one staffer says, I feel outraged. I can't believe I had to watch him provoke people on whether or not it's appropriate to use a racist slur. Another staffer says, I don't want to be in a workplace where people feel emboldened to have this argument. People's humanity is not an intellectual debate. So it's like, you know, it's like when you see a couple fighting and one of them just decides to go wide with it. No, it's like it's actually about all of our humanity that this guy is trying to have a discussion about. Yes, it's a provocative term, but this I, this is actually a very important issue right now in, in journalism and in intellectual culture. What can people debate? What is, what is allowed to be said? What is dangerous to say? What kinds of censorship might rain down on your head if you if you say something that, that goes against rules that are all a lot of which are unspoken or which existed a year or two ago and have now suddenly shifted when a slack mob comes after you. So he's actually trying to have an interesting discussion about this. And for that, he was punished. So I, I, the reaction of the staffers who clearly feel emboldened to have their views uh, predominate is what's worrisome to me. That's the mob mentality piling on. Uh, so here's I have a take that you all may disagree with. I'm very glad this happened. Um, and I'm very happy this happened because I think you ha- it has to not for any not having to do with vengeance um, at, at all. Um, you it had the issue has to be pushed to its logical conclusion if there is if anyone is going to to see clearly about the madness that is um, this state of affairs. They still may not see the madness, but the only chance they will is is when things like this happen. Um, I kind of I kind of agree um, <clears throat> because going back to the 2020s and the events that followed George Floyd's killing, the, the, the ripping down the statues, renaming monuments, renaming schools, trying to purge from the historical record names like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. This is part of that. It exhibits all the signs of a classic moral panic and a moral panic doesn't break until there's an event that demonstrates the extent to which this madness has, has is madness and has become pervasive. This isn't it. This is not that event. That event has to has to reach beyond the bounds of the people who are beholden to this moral panic. It has to be in a courtroom 
or or some sort of institution that was previously immune to this sort of thing before people snap out of it. There, there's another something else that happened in the pop culture world. I think last week, which which is similar to this, which was there was a sort of well known, well regarded makeup artist working on a new project uh, that Amy Poehler's production company is creating, and a st- this, an unnamed star of this project asked for a certain rap song to be played, and the makeup artist started singing along to it, and it did involve the N word as many rap uh, performances do. And the makeup artist used the N word while singing along. And for this, this person was fired. So you do, these things are happening. It's not just among the kind of woke intellectuals. It's happening mainstream kind of cultural production industry. This is happening all over. So I agree with Noah. This isn't the hill that this is going to die on. And and it sounds like in the case of McNeil, there are a lot of people who wanted to see Pesca gone anyway. And so this was a convenient excuse. But this is happening in a lot of areas of our culture right now. Well, I think there are two sides to this, one of which is you're, you're absolutely right, Christine. What matters here is not what happens to people like us. It's what matters to people who work in a hair salon or work in a, you know, work at a, on a factory floor or something like that. Do they get targeted and fired for uh, the crime of uh, saying something, saying something, doing something like that, that in, in, in previous uh, generations, it would have been. We, no one would ever have thought that that was an appropriate uh, remedy for uh, for an offense, uh, and yet now apparently it's the only appropriate remedy for for an offense. And not only that, but of course, people then lose their lose their jobs, lose their livelihoods. There's some kind of a period, an interregnum period, in which they cannot work and they cannot do anything, and then they gingerly try to get back into the workplace. And then the question is, will they ever be able to work again? Because there's this mark on them. It's there. Sometimes it gets public. And and so it's not only that there's this, you know, loss of income, this kind of horrible, uh, shuddery thing that happens to them that is almost unimaginable, but it can be life-ending. It can be, it can be life-defining. And the thing about the Pesca circumstance, which is interesting, is maybe his boss, Jared Holt, wanted him gone and basically used this as an excuse because it was a pretty savage going after. In other words, like he decided to do this. He cut off his – ended his pa- – he c- killed his password. He made it impossible for him to get into the system and suspended him without pay, like not pending investigation. So maybe this is like, aha – this is a great opportunity for me to do what I want to do and get rid of this guy. I don't like him. That's even worse in some ways because then this simply becomes a tool in the toolkit in the sort of – Becomes. It's been that for a long time. Every New York Times staffer who is drummed out of there with their Slack channels and everybody posting axes about them, that's – it's a power play. Okay, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not – I'm talking actually about the question of whether or not some – you know, lily-livered, middle management, you know, panty-waist, slimy person starts deploying, you know, who is, uh, doesn't like somebody or doesn't like whatever, like uses a, an accusation of the sort that can destroy someone's life forever as a, as a, as sort of, as an internal bureaucratic play against that person specifically. And that can be done. That's what I'm talking about. When it can be done anywhere, somebody but, doesn't like the some a colleague of his, and he goes to goes to uh, you know goes to the HR person and says he used the N word in the locker room. But um, given the the quotes, may from, not have used it. 
Given yeah. given the quotes from this particular story, though, I think in in any case there was you know some sort of like you know uh, uprising or sort of some you know some some totally voiced outrage um, among among other employees there, and I think they're they're at, in liberal left spaces there always is in such circumstances. You know, I don't think they have to if if you're using it as an excuse to get rid of someone you don't like. You don't have to manufacture much. The, the outrage is always going to be there. Right. Um, you know, I think this, this, this it occurs to me that what we have, there was the, there was this moment, right, at Yale when um, the Christakis's, uh, uh, Nicholas and his wife, whose name I can't remember, first name I can't remember right now, they were the masters of a. They were they were the resident masters in a, a Yale a residential college, and she said something about Halloween costumes and how everybody should lighten up, and the world came down on her and on him, and uh, and there was this moment when Christakis tried to sort of have a conversation with this mob, and this uh, student said something like, "I, I don't want to talk about what happened. I want to talk about my pain." I want to talk about my pain. And this quote was sort of retailed, particularly by people like us, as my, oh, you see where this is going? You know, oh, this is, see, they've really revealed who they are and how that, you know, it doesn't matter what he, what, 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 what he said or what was said. What matters is the, is your pain. Uh, that person has won. That, I feel your pain, the Christakis have lost. People like us have lost. They have won. This is now considered a legitimate way to respond to something. In Mike Pesca's case, two years ago or three years ago, whatever this was, he made the decision. They made the decision to worry about feeling someone's pain and not using the word in summarizing a story. They had a conscious choice to make, you know. Yes or no, and they went with no, considered, thoughtful decision, and for making the thoughtful decision, he is fired. So this is what one of the things that's interesting that the shift we've seen in just the past year when a lot of these things occur is um, precisely that. It's not now just, oh, he said something, I feel unsafe or uh, my pain, et cetera, et cetera. Now, even trying to have a discussion about certain controversial things, particularly regarding race, um, there's also to a lesser extent this happens with transgender issues, even trying to have a discussion, raising the issue is now enough to get you fired. I want to read you another uh, staffer quote that was, was given to the reporter about the Pesca case. The reporter said, or the staffer said, Mike Pesca is really the only one causing these kinds of conflicts. We have other staffers who hold opinions that are unpopular at Slate, but they're not provoking their colleagues in a harassment-worthy way. That, to me, is what's so chilling about this. It's that he raised a controversial topic, and just raising the topic is enough now to put you on the radar screen of those who might seek to cancel you. So that's the part where if you work at one of these institutions, or even if you just, you know, if you're the makeup artist or you work on, you know, uh, a film set, you are constantly self-censoring now. If you're smart, you are really, really watching what you say, not just in the general, polite, civil way that we all should do for each other, um, but in a way that has a whole other layer of, of consciousness to it about possibly offending others well beyond the bounds of civility and politeness. 
You know, yeah, I just I don't think thing. you're, <clears throat> John, I don't think your uh, assessment fatalistic as it is and perhaps in keeping with our brand is necessarily merch, merch.commentarymagazine.com for that crushing morosity sweatshirt or t shirt. Merch.commentarymagazine.com. We are flogging the merch today. <laughs> on brand, <clears throat> but I don't think it's a, it's a, it's accurate. I think it's, it's perhaps a little fatalistic. The notion that these people have won suggests that there is no, no counter effort no fight. <laughs> and there is. The fight is ongoing both in these institutions and particularly in institutions that are branding themselves immune to this sort of thing, opposed to it institutionally, not just individuals. That fight is ongoing. Um, the fact that they're on the heels, on the back foot, does not mean they have lost. It merely means that they've entered into a stage of the conflict in which they're they're on the back foot, but the conflict isn't over. Fair and the enough. backlash is brewing, and the backlash is evident and visible, more beyond our shores than here, but it's coming. This okay, sort of so stuff cannot, cannot go on forever. So Christine mentioned transgender issues. Ryan Anderson, who now is the head of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, published a book three or four years ago called When Harry Became Sally about transgender issues, and Amazon has removed it from its cyber shells without explanation, without telling encounter books why it's happened. Um, we know why it happened, but they won't they won't own up and fess up to why it happened. And and under these circumstances, uh, you know, uh, that's a that's another version of the notion that the conversation about something in itself is illegitimate. That is. Well, th- this is where we get into the famous thing that people are told or used to be told, which is you don't argue politics or religion, right? You don't argue politics or religion because they're too heated people. It's, it's socially too confrontational. You can't argue about politics or religion. Well, here we have politics as religion. It's politics as religion. You're saying that you don't believe in the divinity of Christ or something like that is something that should mark you as a person who should not be, you know, uh, in fit company. My children cannot be allowed to hear you say such a thing. This is too injurious and threatening to our way of life and to the good working order of our, you know, of civilization and our very souls. Our very souls are at risk from your views. And so if you treat politics as religion, the idea of this kind of suppression isn't low, right? It's virtuous. It's a, it's a, it's an expression of virtue to be a warrior whose purpose is to extirpate and excommunicate anybody who might question delivered and revealed doctrine. And, uh, you know, uh, if we're, if we're moving into this territory where people like Ryan and uh, Abigail Schreier and others who are who are courageous enough to take on this extraordinarily sensitive uh, shibboleth uh, and raise the question of whether gender dysphoria is something that should be acted upon, particularly in the case of teenage girls uh, who are uh, and boys who are making you know traumatic and horrible and and uh, irrevocable changes to their bodies. Uh, uh, without the full context of whatever it is that they should be doing, including uh, their own, uh, you know, uh, psychological or spiritual malformations that might be leading to this extreme measure. This is a totally legitimate subject for discussion. Uh, It's a subject for discussion. It's very important that there be a discussion of this because things are happening that are irrevocable. Um, 
And yet uh, that is where you are not allowed to have the conversation because it is too threatening to the revealed religion of the moment. This is why it is a moral panic and why the backlash is inevitable. Taboos are good. Social stigmas are good to an extent. We enforce them, we create them, and they make for an equitable in, you know, a com- a society that has comedy. Um, but they invite iconoclasm. They invite people to test them. And when you create a taboo, it becomes sexy to go after it. Now, right now, you, and the only way you get to eliminate that is an authoritarian impulse and, a, and authoritarian structures that prevent people from testing these sort of things. But in their absence, and in a free society like we have, they will be tested. And eventually it will become um, noble to test them because that's just the way of things. That's how it's always been. There will be intergenerational conflict and somebody will come along and, and make it a, a, a mark of um, intellectual independence and um, coolness to test these things and, be, and, and refuse to bow to these sort of pressures. It's not here yet, okay. but it's inevitable. Well, this is like what I've, you know, I've, I've thought there's, there's going to be a coming right wing 1960s in that sense, you know, um, where, where there's, there's going to be a, a break from um, the, those, the institutionalized uh, wokeness of, uh, you know, they're whoever, whoever yeah. these kids are, parents, but I just want to be, it won't be dominant culture. It will be counterculture. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah. Right. But, but I just who, want to say, who's, I think, to, who's to say that's not what Trump was? Who's to say that we're not in the, you know, the Trumpification of the Republican Party could itself be that force, uh, right. just as the uh, 60s, uh, for many of us, believe that the liberationist ethos of the 60s was a malign and destructive force. Some of us believe this about uh, Trumpism also. Uh, others don't. But I mean, you know, there right. there is some evidence for that. Sorry. Uh, I just want to say, I, I think the, the situation at Amazon um, and the Ryan Anderson book is much more worrisome than the situation at Slate because the the what's going on at Slate that's that's the left's own precinct right um, that's 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 them doing their thing uh, the Amazon story shows what happens when this escapes in, onto platforms that we all use um, and and take part in. And the problem here is that is that uh, is the limiting principle because uh, w- with Amazon because you know uh, it's the ultimate slippery slope and this is why certain types of libertarian views of free speech uh, when free speech is, is is at risk seem to be the only uh, reliable uh, option even though I'm I, you know sort of at, at, at more at calmer times I have problems with them which is like. So of course you look at Amazon if they were if they were to say not refuse to sell you know I don't know the book where that shows you how to make a Molotov cocktail or the famous the famous issue of 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 uh, was it New York Review of Books where they showed had a diagram of how to make a Molotov cocktail and they were like well we can't sell that because it might lead to violence or they don't want to sell Mein Kampf. But they, they do want to sell. You right. can buy Mein Kampf right. on Amazon right. right now. You just can't right. buy books about transgender kids. <laughs> right. But my point is, like, you could ha- imagine a series of conversations about how there, there, there are always works that someone is going to say, if you suppress it, that's in the end, that's that's good. The protocols of the elders of Zion. I don't know what you want to what what document you want to use. 
once you say, well, you know, Amazon is a private company. It has the right to sell what it wants to sell or not sell what it doesn't want to sell or something like that. Then, yeah, it can it can say I'm not selling Ryan Anderson's book. There's not much. There's no commercial downside to them. Like it probably sells, you know, a couple hundred copies a year. They're not making any money off it. It's it doesn't mean anything to them. They get they get brownie points with uh, woke people for having you know uh, protected them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the thing that liberals need to understand is that. This is there is no limiting principle. So here's the dirty if secret. you go at, if you go after Ryan Anderson's book, there is nothing to prevent them except decaying cultural norms that decay faster than you could possibly imagine. For them not to suppress, I don't know, you know, uh, any book uh, that doesn't say him, her, he, she, including you know. Tolstoy. I mean, you know, there's no limiting. Well, they are doing that. I mean, they actively are doing that. Cancel. This is disrupt texts to cancel uh, literature from an earlier age that promotes that is a product of their times and, and gives you an idea of what their times were like. Well, and that's, that's an old and that, that and that, by the way, is a very old right. thing in Western civilization. That's where the term bodlerization comes from. Right. Mr. Bodler went and rewrote Shakespeare. I was a lady. Con- what? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, to to make it conform with uh, the social norms and niceties of 19th century Britain. But it became a joke. She became a joke. But it, The but, word itself is an insult. Yeah, but who made it a joke? The counterculture, the counterculture reaction. Here's a dirty secret. Every conservative author wants their book canceled. <laughs> sorry to tell you. this is It's a gold mine to have your book canceled. He wasn't making any money off Amazon either. Now that book is going to sell. More than it would have sold otherwise. This is just like the near attendant thing. Everybody gets theirs. Uh, yeah, but no. I mean, yes, because in in an in an individual case, maybe uh, maybe that's a good thing. The question is again, right. what it reveals about the what it reveals about the ability of ordinary people who might want to read Brian Anderson's book from having a conversation. Well, and what it I, I'm more concerned down the line what it prevents the, the books it will prevent people from writing and getting published. That's the part where like, it's not just like the books that are out there that people don't agree with. It's, I mean, already he was in a smaller publisher who published his work. Like if mainstream publishers just don't even want to be bothered with having to deal with any sort of outrage machine. And they've, we've seen this in fiction and in nonfiction, what books are never going to get a contract in the first place. And we, we know this is the way they're thinking because the post Trump era produced a, a couple of articles that looked at the publishing industry and, and literary agents in particular and how they're cleaning house for anything that could be even remotely called white supremacist. They're getting rid of those authors. They're getting rid of those contracts. They're trying to make sure that they're, they're aligning with this new, you know, religion basically. Right. Uh, guys, speaking of, of, of how to think about important matters, uh, regarding, uh, faith, freedom, virtue, uh, let me just ask you this. What good is freedom without virtue? That's the question. So join economists, religious leaders, writers, newsmakers, and thinkers every Wednesday for conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics on Acton Line, the flagship podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, 
Conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish and that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. So to subscribe to Act in Line, visit actin.org slash commentary or search Act in Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe. Uh, so, uh, Noah, Nira Tandon, go. <laughs> That's a setup. Great. Um, Noah's about to be unleashed. <laughs> well, so Nira Tandon's nomination is not 100% destroyed. But it looks that way. Um, she's not going to get the support of any Republicans in the conference. It looks. And with Joe Manchin's defection, that seems to be all it's going to take. We believe that it's most likely that either she will withdraw or the White House will withdraw her nomination in favor of a more qualified candidate. But not without a fight. The, the White House uh, is apparently attempting to retail a narrative that was picked up un- uncritically in quite a lot of the press. Um, um, most notably in the Washington Post and Politico, but Politico is the one I want to focus on because it has these unattributed quotes from people close to the, the president or the White House, what have you, um, where they go after Joe Manchin directly uh, for displaying some rather discomforting tendencies toward uh, viewing this woman's nomination, specifically the fact that she's a woman, in different terms than he had for various other um, people. And that reveals perhaps a little bit of sexism on Joe Manchin's part. And that the evidence that they use in order to justify this claim that Joe Manchin is beholden to a uh, antediluvian misogyny is that he wasn't nearly as critical of uh, Rick Grinnell Rick Grinnell is uh, Donald Trump's former brief national security advisor, was unconfirmed, but he was confirmed to serve as the ambassador to Germany. And he has a pretty acerbic online persona. So what's the difference? It must be that he's a man. Rick Grinnell is an openly gay gentleman. Um, I don't know how he conducts himself in in person. We haven't seen each other in person in many, many years. But um, the notion here that they're attempting to retail is that Joe Manchin is so anti-woman that he's more in favor of gay men um, be, betrays a level of hilarity that I think is very dangerous to this cause. That is objectively funny. Everybody who has a, an ounce of humor in them can make a joke about that. And I think that while we probably won't see it from professional humorists, we will see it from the counterculturals, the, the heterodox, the iconoclasts who test these taboos. Um, And it is the worst possible thing for people who wield this sort of thing like a weapon. There's no intellectual argument here. It's not a smart argument. It's a threat. It just exists as a threat. It doesn't need to be engaged intellectually. It should be laughed at because it's funny. And people will begin to laugh at it because it's funny. And that will rob this this thing of more of power faster than any of our intellectual efforts to dissect 
the the veracity of these claims. I will look. I'll make a I'll make a, a slight intellectual effort to to dissect it on this point. I actually think her sex has helped her in this. She's gotten an advantage from being a woman in two ways. Number one, she's well known to have covered for a sexual a serial sexual harasser on her own staff and to have outed the the an anonymous staffer who came forward with those allegations in front of her staff. That is a known story. It was known before she was nominated. It's also been said that she punched someone. She literally physically assaulted someone who she was angry about for asking a question about Hillary Clinton. So if a man had done either one of those things, there is no way on earth he would have been nominated by Joe Biden for this position. No way. If that had been public information, you know that wouldn't have happened. So in some sense, her sex has protected her. And I, I do agree with Noah, though, that like the the, the absolute retreat to the identity politics uh, uh, ticking of boxes is at this point laughable and predictable. And I'm surprised, actually, that that the credulous way in which this was presented in the media. And I love Bill Crystal, our friend Bill Crystal, but even he said, you know, oh, I think there must be sexism. I don't think that's right. I think that actually this was a clear case of they have a bad nominee who they knew to be troublesome and they have tr- tried to find a way to, to save face for having put her forward in the first place. But for a long time, these things have just generated eye rolls. Oh, this again. And it's not funny as much as exhausting. This is a punchline. This one is is too hard to Literally, not. If you're near a it's conspicuous <laughs> if you don't make a joke about it. Okay, can I also go into the ethnic politics here because there is a very interesting fact, right? So Nira Tandon is South Asian, from of South Asian origin. Um, so uh, between India, Pakistan, and uh, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, right? That's like a billion and a half people. Uh, on the planet Earth, maybe maybe a little more uh, than a billion and a half people who 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 are generally categorized as South Asian. Then you take uh, Asian, right? So Asians, uh, uh, Koreans, Japanese, Chinese uh, make up another what, like two billion, something like that. Um, but uh, you can say very clearly that uh, South, South Asian civilization is very distinct from Asian civilization, right? Got its own gods, own cosmogony, own, own uh, you know, fascinating, you know, multi millennia history, uh, kings, monarchies, uh, you know, dynasties, architecture, literature, all of that. So uh, Jen Psaki yesterday, in an effort to, you know, spin the Neera Tandon nomination, says she's the first Asian American nominee to OMB. So uh, now it's okay to sort of imagine under other circumstances that uh, Trump, in an effort to defend somebody, called a South Asian an Asian in an effort to expand out the category of uh, defensible, you know, uh, sort of you can't attack somebody because they're of their ethnicity thing, right? Literally, it's the case now that it's okay for uh, liberals to elide to make some kind of an ignorant cultural elision between South Asians and Asians in order to score some idiot you know, count by race point. Yes, it's also, but it's, but it's also okay if someone is Asian American and expresses conservative views to refer to them as white or white adjacent. So it's both and, right? It depends on what your political views are. Your ethnicity is hinges on whether you have the correct political view, right? From the liberal perspective. Um, you know, this is a very important point because uh, 
there was uh there was a, a fascinating interview and uh hold on I'm sorry, just give me a second. There there was a fascinating interview with a writer in the New York Times named Viet Thanh Nguyen, uh Vietnamese writer who wrote a very successful novel called The Sympathizer. Uh he is also a uh, uh, a sorry, I think a monthly columnist for the New York Times, and he's the guy who wrote this piece saying uh, li- liberals got awakened to the horror of fascism and all this by Trump, and they can't just go back and start writing novels again about flowers and 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 bushes and trees and stuff like that because we need to continue to you know ag- you know produce essentially anti-Trump, anti-conservative agitprop. So I, I only bring this up to say that uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen is a is a uh, a Vietnamese uh, immigrant to the United States was a boat person came to was somebody who fled with his family on a on a boat from Vietnam during the uh, reeducation the nightmarish reeducation uh, wars of the late nineteen uh, seventies. Um, the New York Times managed to find the only left wing boat person on the planet earth to be their like voice of vietnamese culture the only one i've met many many vietnamese immigrants to the united states they are not they do not think that the united states is an evil country and in this interview he says in his second novel which is now coming out that he wanted to combat the image in America that boat people being immigrants were weak. And that's how Americans thought of us as weak. And I wanted to show that we were strong. Weak? What kind of nonsense is this? Like you, I remember when the boat people were coming, this was considered a, you know, a, a tragic flotilla, like that these people were forced to, you know, uh, embark on these incredibly risky journeys across the South China Sea in leaky boats to get away from a gulag. They weren't thought of as weak. And when they came here, they were embraced. They were a symbol of courage. They were a symbol of courage. They were embraced by this country. Well, 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 anyway, so I'm I'm just, I'm just ranting. No, President Ford went to war with the Democratic controlled Senate at the time of this refugee crisis, because there were many Democrats who were opposed to resettling these refugees, quote, um, barmaids, prostitutes, and criminals. Among them, Senator Joseph Biden. Oof. Well, now he's building, what, what are they calling the facilities that they're housing all the immigrant children in now? Because they're not cages anymore. They're like- Shelters. Shelters. They're children shelter. Yeah, they're the, filling the euf- up. Yes. The euphemisms uh, multiply with each passing week. <laughs> right. Anyway, I'm sorry to rant about this because, uh, but I read it, I read this interview and I read this thing and it, it just occurred to me that it's astonishing. It's like, it's like if you find, you know, I don't know if you, you know, whatever it's it 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 just it was it's an interesting cultural factoid that you know this is this is who uh is the voice of of uh this community uh on the pages in uh, and the website of the of the new york times and uh, therefore suitable to this general understanding that uh as long as you are someone uh, in a minority who expresses the views that you are deter are you, you need to express in order to in order to sort of be popular with a certain type of person, then you're fine. And if you're not, you're not. Um, 
And you know what else is not fine is tooth decay, cavities, all of that. And and a lot of people think that you shouldn't chew gum because it's rude or it's what it's not helpful. It'll destroy your teeth. But listen, gum can be the unsung hero when it comes to better oral health because the American Dental Association recommends chewing sugar-free gum for 20 minutes after meals. Sugar-free gum. You chew it as a way to relieve stress. You can curb your appetite and you can freshen your breath. And it can be an integral part of a healthy oral care routine. And the oral care experts at Quip have made a gum that stands out from the pack, one that can help prevent cavities and taste great too. After the reinvention of the toothbrush by Quip for the modern age, they've done it again with chewing gum. It's a gum, you do it for 20 minutes after meals, sugar-free, has tooth-friendly xylitol with zero calories. And to satisfy your taste buds, Quip added a long-lasting mint flavor, crunchy tri-layer design, and stamped it all with the classic Quip tongue. The slim travel-ready dispenser, available in five colors, metal or plastic, packs and protects up to 10 gum pieces at a time and fits in just about any purse or pocket for on the go. A gum refill plan. You can get one for a gift that keeps on giving all year round. The customizable subscription (laughs) lets you chew and share at your own pace and not worry about running out. Plus, the more you buy, the more you save with bulk discounts and extra gum packs. It's not a substitute for brushing and flossing, but this is great support for your oral health. And in addition to gum packs, Quip also delivers those fresh brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months from $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the misery of of in-store shopping. Spread good oral health habits this season and join the over 5 million mouths already using Quip. Get chewing for less than $2 per gum pack. And if you go to getquip.com slash commentary right now, you can get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary. Spell G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary. Quip, the good habits company. Um, so uh, President Biden uh, last night commemorated uh, the horrible, uh, nightmarish fact that uh, the United States has just passed uh, a death toll from COVID of uh, five hundred thousand. Christine, you watched his speech. What was your What was your takeaway? I thought it was a, a good good remarks, um, and and I was struck by how it does mark a weird return to normalcy in terms of one of the important roles that a president can and should play in in the American conversation. I disagree intensely on a lot of the policies that the Biden administration is pursuing with regard to this pandemic, but I did appreciate that he took a moment to to say, you know, this is this is a grim milestone. Um, the empathy he expressed was genuine. Um, it was thoughtful of the the families who are who are struggling to grieve over their lost family members. It was important, and I think one of the one of the things that I that drove me nuts about. Um, Trump in his in his you know iconoclasm was that he had contempt for some of that role as president. He didn't want to do it, or he wanted to do it on his terms, which were far more performative than empathetic. And so I appreciate that that Biden did that last night, and it was important. Um, so let me let me let me raise a heretical, uh, difficult to mention. Obviously, there is every reason to take note of and to be grief stricken and horrified at the, at the, at the half a million number. Um, and obviously what you say about uh, uh, Trump's refusal to play what you might call an almost semi pastoral role, 
uh, as a as a uh, mourner in chief, as a sympathizer in chief, whatever, um, had some bad aspects to it. But I, I do think that there is it's a difficult thing to sort of figure out how to say without sounding heartless. Um, but uh, there is a problem with the notion that we we are we dwell. It's almost a year, and that we are dwelling on the you know the the grief rather than as we've been saying for days rather than focusing on the better news and the fact that there is a better day to come because the more that we subsume ourselves in the notion that we have uh we are we are living in this uh unprecedented way uh caused uh, that has uh you know uh, disrupted everything uh, and in a necessary way, and yet here we are, and we're still subsumed in it, and subsumed in our national grief, and subsumed in our loss, um, is has a has a paralyzing aspect to it. It has a paralyzing aspect. A it it is depressing, literally, and it is and the this existence is depressing and traumatizing people, and focusing on it while. Uh, moral and appropriate in some sense also may have the unintended consequence of deepening the national mood of despair and that learned helplessness that I talked about that is central to this, to the cognitive behavioral theory of what it is that happens to people that makes them depressed and even suicidal, which is this uh, uh, constant reminder of that which they feel powerless over and that they can do nothing about. So now that I have floated this difficult thing to float, is anyone going to provide me with a little blocking tackle, or am I just going to stand out here and uh, be, you know, tormented? Hello. Well, okay. I'll, I wait. I'll give you one. I'll give you one thing, which is I I agree, and and we actually spoke about this yesterday that we were. I was curious to see if he would give a positive, hopeful message, which he evidently did not. Um, but I don't think it's wrong to Marcus. It's also been kind of like a year since everyone's felt like the lockdown has started. So, but it's the next month. Let's see how the rhetoric will or will not change in the next, uh, you know, even the next few weeks. That's what to watch now, I think. But it, I think it really was appropriate because we didn't really get that collective mourning moment at all over the last, you know, year and a half. So I, I felt like that was a mark that maybe even psychologically for the administration, they can now say, okay, we've, we've, we've done this and now we need to start looking ahead, but we'll see if they do that. I, mean, I don't know if our culture has changed so much. It may have, I don't know. Um, we'll learn soon enough, but the story of every major pandemic over the course of the last century is that when it's over, no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to remember it. No one wants to review it. No one wants to explore what we did to survive in the price. It is a black mark that everybody wants to move on from as fast as possible. And there's, that's probably an evolutionary trait because it's so universal. Um, but, you know, maybe we're, maybe we've become so maudlin that we want to dwell on the, the terrible aspects of the pandemic and just, you know, steep ourselves in our own emotional morass. That's quite possible. I wouldn't put it past us at this stage, but if we're anything like, previous generations, we will want to move on from this with some alacrity. Um, so I, I pity everybody who signed a book contract to review, you know, the, the pandemic, because I can't imagine that people will really want to engage with what happened here in a, in a, in a, a really studious academic way, or more than a studious academic way, just, you know, sort of a, a, a remembrance and embrace of this period, because it's not going to be pleasant. 
Well, I think that's a real, that's a test. It's a civilizational test. We're going to see, we're going to see how we do on that test. Are we, are we capable of uh, uh, moving forward and, uh, you know, gripping the bull by the horns of sort of life and productivity and optimism and good cheer? Or, or is, are, are, do you now get so many points for dwelling on your victimization, your victimhood and the bad uh, that it's going to be very hard for people to move on and the culture itself will reward people who don't. Uh, let me give you an example of this. So uh, Andrew Cuomo, of all people, announced yesterday that movie theaters were going to open up in New York for the first time in a year. They're opening up in like two weeks, 25% capacity, like no more than 50 people in a theater, depending on what 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 theater it is. And I, I look on Twitter, and again, so it's Twitter, so take it for what it comes. But um, there is a whole world of film writers, film critics, film analysts, all of that, who are like, he shouldn't do this. Like, don't do it. Like, I I don't want to go back in a theater. I, I don't want to go back in a theater. It's like, this is Andrew Cuomo. Like, he loves keeping things closed down. He is law. Now, maybe he's trying to change the subject because his press is so bad and all of this, but... I thought we were supposed to listen to people like him. If you're people like them, like I don't listen to him because I think he's full of it, but they listen to him. And so aren't they then supposed to say, okay, well, if Andrew Cuomo says it's okay to go back into the theater, I guess I can go back into a theater. That is not the psychology of this now. It really isn't. It has a self-perpetuating, which is that other people are a danger to me. Other people are a danger to me. And that is something that people have now put on like a sweater. They can take it off. But at some point, maybe it's not a sweater. Maybe it starts sinking and it gets knit into their skin. Oh, I think it has. I mean, I think I think we've we've been somewhat blinded to how much that has sunk in uh, in a lot of places because we've seen um, the use and the manipulation of people um, people's fear in things like the with uh, cases like with the teachers unions. Um, but that shouldn't uh, blind us to the to the fact that there are millions of Americans out there who genuinely feel that who for whom there is no there is no good day to start testing the waters in, unless unless the number is down to zero I mean as more tales from the suburbs here for those of you who don't inhabit a major metro in America um, movie theaters in my state have been open for a very long time um, to the 25% capacity limit. And um, so of restaurants, what have you. Now, restaurants are packed to the gills. 25% is a floor, not a ceiling. There is no regime testing this sort of thing. There's like two sacrificial booths in your local diner and every other table is full. Um, and it's been that way for a while. Malls are packed, jam-packed, uncomfortably packed. Um, the exception is movie theaters. Movie theaters are empty and have been forever. And I don't think that has as much to do with a risk assessment as it is just a simple assessment of personal value, personal pleasure that you place on going to a movie theater. There are alternatives as opposed to a restaurant, as opposed to a shopping mall. There are alternatives that people are more readily interested in patronizing than than the movie theater experience. And it may just be as simple as that, that sadly as it is, the utility of this venue has outlived its usefulness. Well, I mean, also, there's been, to be fair, there's been nothing to see. There's been nothing to see. Too, if yeah. you there, go, some, there are some things that are getting theater release now, right? There, little bits and pieces of the things get a theatrical release all the time. You know, Tom Hanks's movie News of the World got a theatrical release and made $4 million. Like, there's nothing to see. 
So uh, th- this is a cart, you know, this is like one of those uh, chicken and egg things. Like if you don't have, you know, uh, a really, really, like, for example, uh, you could go see Wonder Woman at Christmas time. Uh, though, uh, and you could go see, it's great, you could go see Wonder Woman. A, it stunk. Uh, B, it was on HBO Max uh, at the same time. But it was also, it was bad. So it's, uh, and word came out pretty fast that uh, that it was bad. And, uh, you know, but there's been nothing to see. So we'll see what happens now if uh, if, if major metropolitan centers reopen uh, with enough capacity that will then the the big question now is will the next marvel movie open in may which is when it has a tentative opening date because there'll be enough screen capacity to make it worth uh disney's while to release uh, a black widow but i don't want to talk about theaters per se i'm just saying uh you're right that places are crowded in a lot of America. But the very fact that you use the word uncomfortably packed at the mall itself suggests the kind of, uh, you know, uh, Rubicon that we have to cross when people no longer have that thought. Because if, if you know, if 20% of people have that thought, let's say th- uh, restaurants open to full capacity, right? If 20% of the potential audience or audience, a uh, custom, customer base of restaurants doesn't go back to restaurants. Restaurants cannot survive. They need a hundred percent of their customer base to be willing to go out to restaurants because it is a narrow margin business with very thin profit margins. And if they, you know, if they're not full to the way that they were full beforehand, then there's, you know, th- this will be a false dawn and a false spring, unfortunately. And uh, let me just talk to you uh, finally about that new sponsor we got yesterday, Honey, because we all shop online. We've all seen that promo field taunt us at checkout. But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online, ranging from tech, gaming, popular fashion brands, even food delivery. So imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. When you check out, the Honey button drops down. All you have to do is click Apply Coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. If Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the prices drop. You know, I haven't used it yet, but I I, I was thrilled to discover that I was on some site that had a natural coupon, and there we were getting 15, 20% off. It's a great thing. And if you can do it in an automated fashion, what could be better? So Honey has found over 17 million members, over $2 billion in savings. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free, installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash commentary. That's joinhoney.com slash commentary so uh we uh we gotta go uh i don't know uh what else there is to say except merch.commentarymagazine.com you get your crushing morosity t-shirt your crushing morosity sweatshirt your keep the candle burning t-shirt commentary magazine logo t-shirt and commentary magazine logo tote bag all available for purchase at merch.commentarymagazine.com .com and for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.